You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, everyone. Before we begin today's episode, Melissa and I want to remind you about a new feature on protecting your practice website. Uh, If you're like most practitioners, client forms are not just a part of owning or running a therapy practice, but many are critical to you doing so in a manner that protects your practice. What we often hear from practitioners is that they are struggling to make sure they have the forms they need to do that. Well, you can now find a range of those some of the most commonly needed forms available to you that you may use in your own practice um, available on our website. Um, We strongly encourage you to go check them out. Um, One thing I would always say as the attorney in the room is that I also strongly recommend that you consult with an attorney um, in your jurisdiction to make sure that you are complying with all the rules in your own state and your own licensing board. Uh, We will be rolling out more forms in the future and other exciting updates um, as we proceed. So please feel free to come back and bookmark these, the site and check back with us. Thanks very much. And now on to our show. All right. So let's get started. Today, Dan and I are talking with Dr. Jessica Hassan. Dr. Hassan is licensed as a psychologist in Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. She specializes in psychological assessment, including psychological evaluations, psychoeducational evaluations, and forensic evaluations. Dr. Hassan is also a published author, And she has presented over 50 times at state, national, and international psychology conferences and has published book chapters and peer-reviewed journal articles on assessment. I'm excited to have Jess on because uh, I can honestly say I know her personally. Um, She even knows my wife personally. Uh, She and my wife both did a postdoc together. um, And then my wife did some supervision with her as well um, on her way into her uh, career. Um, and she also attended my wedding. So it's exciting to have her on here on the, on the podcast with us. Well, thank you guys for having me. Yeah. So for season two, we've had people talking about a specific challenge they've experienced as a practitioner, what they've learned, uh, how they navigated that situation, and what others can take away from that situation as well. For today's episode, though, we're going to be talking specifically about the role you play, which is challenging in general. So you do assessments and forensic work. And so tell us a little bit more about that work. Sure. So for forensic work, I do mainly criminal and juvenile justice. So I'm working with children and adolescents and adults who are involved with the criminal justice system or the juvenile justice system. So I don't do a lot of civil work. That's by choice. And so I see the ins and outs of the, just, uh, the, ins and outs of the justice system. So I've seen it work and I've seen it fail miserably. Yes. So that that in itself has been kind of interesting to navigate, especially, you know, in light of George Floyd and some of the other things that have happened. Mm-hmm. And just sure. to see some areas of the justice system making adjustments and other areas kind of holding firm mm-hmm. and not moving. Yeah. So what is the most challenging part? of your job and doing forensic work, would you say? Honestly, a lot of it is trying to communicate the results to the court in a way that the trier of fact, the judge, jury, and although the attorneys are not triers of fact, sometimes I think they are, and that they... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, Dan, there's going to be lots of attorney jokes. So It's okay. I I, I appreciate it. It's great. But 
the law works in black and white and psychology exists in shades of gray. So, I mean, this is always the problem with the forensics, with forensic psychology is we speak different languages. So a lot of it is the interpretation. And some of it is that law in itself is a very, I mean, it's an older field, you know, you're right or you're wrong. And that's not what psychology really is. Psychology is, you know, our correct answer is always, it depends or it's complicated. So lawyer, that sounds like a lot of lawyers too. Now, how have you navigated that knowing that, you know, in order to do your job, you are having to work within that system? How have you navigated that and maybe even some of the stress and frustration around that? I mean, there's a lot of screaming, to be honest, but a lot of a lot of the way that I navigated it is also thinking about other ways that psychologists need to fit into these structured guidelines like the DSM or the ICD, whatever we're using is a set of guidelines that we have to meet. The assessments that I do, I, I take insurance. So I'm working within medically necessary guidelines. So just taking what we have and taking the system that we need to work with and trying to find a happy medium where I still feel comfortable that I'm doing what I should be doing and what I need to do as a psychologist, but also trying to meet the system's needs as well and pushing the system as I can. So trying to educate the system or the people in the system. So in forensics, it's the trier of fact, like the I'll keep using that phrase. I'm sorry. I, I was in court not too long ago. So the the judge, the jury, the attorneys, even the social workers that work with the court and helping to educate them on some, some things that can be done to maybe help the defendant or the respondent, or that, that could be done just to kind of like move the system along. And I, sometimes it's offhanded comments that I'll make while prepping for expert witness testimony, which is something we do. And make comments to the attorney that's retained me and say, like, why are we doing this? Like, honestly, why why are we going through with this? And just to kind of put some thoughts in their head, because there, there are some ridiculous cases that go through. I mean, when people think of the justice system, they're thinking about murders, they're thinking about car thefts. There's people that are going through long extended pretrial releases for disorderly conduct or for trespassing. And these get prosecuted as well. How do you prepare? You know, you're talking about when an attorney hires you, um, you know, you come in and, and, and you're being you know, presented as an expert. You know, what's your process? Um, you know, most people, you know, and I work with practitioners, court and the legal system. And, you know, that's really stressful. You can just see I, I when, when words court or deposition or testifying come up, I see practitioners eyes like a deer in headlights. Um, but you're obviously very accomplished and have a lot of experience with this. So how do you prepare, you know, uh, to, you know, for that? Well, first, great question. So, cause I think a lot of psychologists think like we can't prepare. No, we can, we absolutely right. can prepare. So if you're being retained, talk to the attorney, like prep, you know, direct. So there's two parts of testimonies, direct and cross, and then there could be redirect too, but that is what it is. But direct's not designed to be adversarial. That's where you get the information out. And the attorneys can help. They obviously have a case and it's not our job to prove the case. And I I always remind myself when I'm prepping, I'm just there to talk about the data. It's the attorney's job to make the case. And the attorney has retained me because they believe that my data supports their case, but it's their job to bring it out. So what I can do is just talk about the data, talk about the facts and talk about my expert opinion, which is based in those facts. So when I'm being retained by an attorney, the very first thing I do, I start prepping like way early. So when someone contacts me, I do a consultation with them first 
And I set out the guidelines and I say, look, the data is the data. My job is not to prove your case. I will let you know what my results are going to be, like what I'm, where I'm looking after I have all the data. And then if you want me to go ahead, we can start talking about report writing, expert testimony, things like that. But I'm going to be in contact with you the entire time. So you know what's happening. Now, that's if I'm retained. If I'm a court-ordered expert, like I am with DDA, so I am a subcontractor with the Developmental Disabilities Administration doing pre-trial, mainly pre-trial evaluations, that's different because I'm court-ordered. So I do the evaluation and the evaluation goes in and sometimes the public defender says, hey, or the hired attorney, if they have one, says, hey, I want you to testify. Okay, fine. Or sometimes the state's attorney says, hey, I need you to testify. And again, that process is a, a little bit different because the report's already written. Yeah. So like Dan was saying, a lot of times mental health practitioners, like they're not wanting to go to court. Even a subpoena is kind of a pain in the butt and making sure that you're handling it correctly. You know, if uh, you work with children, a lot of people talk about, well, I don't want parents to try to take me to court to talk about custody and stuff like that. So a lot of clinicians, if they have to I go to court. I love that comment, by the way. I, I just, I just I love that comment. I get that comment a lot from people. Yeah. And so a lot of times if mental health practitioners do go to court, it may be because they had to, they were required mm-hmm. to go and you've decided to do this voluntarily. So I am really curious to hear about what made you want to do that? <laughs> I mean, my guess is you're doing this because you want to. Yeah. I mean, obviously I don't just like volunteer to <laughs> be an expert, right? You know, they do still subpoena me and I, I am still quite adept at getting out of subpoenas, but <laughs> But I've, I've always been interested in forensics to kind of go back to my history. I grew up in a pretty high crime rate area. And even as a kid, I was always interested in like, why, why is that person committing crimes, but this person's not and seeing some of the differences. And initially I went to undergrad with the intent of being pre-med with the intent of being a forensic pathologist. And then after meeting the other pre-med students and realized I'd likely go on a homicidal rampage if they were my colleagues. I went through a journey and ended up finding psychology, fell in love with forensic psychology and have been there ever since. But for me, the, I've always kind of been interested in the law and I keep threatening my husband with, I'm going to go to law school. haven't done it, but it's a lot of money. So does Haley. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll have to go together. It'll be great. There you go. Sorry, that's hilarious because yeah. I, I hear that a lot too. He also threatens to get a doctorate. So, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> My husband is an MBA and is a scientist. It's a, it's a weird combination. But, but I, I've always kind of, I've, I've been interested. I, I love problem solving and I love answering questions. And that's really what the court is. It's designed as a problem solving, also punitive, but problem solving. So I like that aspect. I also like the aspect that I can sometimes give people a voice that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. So I do like that aspect of it as well. And there's certainly a ton of frustrations that go along with it. (laughs) But I do think a big thing with working with the courts, working with attorneys is just remember that they're doing their job. So Mm. when they get under my, try to get under my skin, some of them do, but they're just doing their job. It's nothing personal. And in fact, if they're going after me personally and not after my data, it just means my data sound and they're doing their last like dit for all of you that can't, I know you can't see this dance nodding. So I'm right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I have, I work with practitioners who work with children or work with couples. And at some point I'll say to them, you know, we'll be talking about risks and, 
you know, liability. And I'm like, you know, there's always the prospect that you may be called to testify or subpoenaed for a deposition. And you're like, oh, wow, I, you know, I want to put my paperwork that you can't call me. And I'm like, yeah, good luck. That's not going to work because you're in a high, you know, contentious area where a child who's um, subject to custody on um, the parents may be fighting it out. And it's very likely you might get a subpoena um, from one of the, one or both parents. So very likely that if you're dealing with a couple who's going through a divorce um, and one of them is your client, there may be an attempt to try to get the records. And to your point, that's the point I make to them is that, you know, you have to remember even the attorneys who are supposedly, you know, adversarial on the opposite side as let's say the client of therapy, the therapist, you know, they're doing their job. They're trying to defend, you know, represent their, their client as well. And there's a reason they're going to get it. And what I stress to a lot of practitioners is you're the third party custodian of the records. They want to know what you know. It's not about you. They're not, you know, they're not coming after you, but they want to know what you know. Um, and I think that's a lot of point that uh, thing that practitioners miss. And I think that you just emphasize is really important is, you know, typically the role of a practitioner like yourself is you're the person with the keys kind of to the information that the courts, the judge, the attorneys are looking for. Um, and it's a critical role. It plays such a critical role in the system. Yeah. I like to think of myself sometimes as a translator to translate the yeah. mental health into something that somebody else can understand. And that's what I do in assessment as well. I have massive num- amounts of numbers and data. And my job is to take all these numbers and data and to say, here's what's going on. Here's how we fix it. And it's not unlike what I do in forensics. It's here's all the data I have. Now, here's what this means for this person. And here's how it kind of fits into these psycholegal criteria, you know, competency to stay trial, things like that. You guys do what you want with it, but here's the data. And I'm going to present it in a way that makes, that hopefully makes sense. And hopefully I'm reflecting the data as well as I can. Now, that being said, I'm going to ask the question to the attorney. I'm going to ask the question. I'm curious to hear, you know, based on what you can talk about, what if or when there was a, a most challenging situation involving an attorney, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe when you're in on the stand or, um, you know, that type of situation. Is, is there a story or two you could tell us? I mean, there's a ton. Um, (laughs) (laughs) let's see i mean i mean obviously like there's been some weird questions on cross those are the best by the way sometimes those are the best (laughs) i mean there's there's been some questions and where the attorneys will take something out of my report and only read half my sentence and they'll say didn't you say blah 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 and i'm and I'm racking my brain i'm like i never said that and then i have to go through the report so i i've become used to saying like can you show me where that is mm. or give me a second? Let me find that because I want to, I want to be specific when I'm answering the question and lots of communication. Right. I've had some issues on direct too, that I've had some attorneys that I'll contact and they'll say, you know, we want you to testify. And I'll say, okay, when do you want to do prep? Oh, I, I'm not going to prep you. That's a mistake. Please. If, if any attorney listening, please, for the love of God, prep your witness. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> because it, it also helps it also helps alleviate our own anxiety mm-hmm. because it's one yeah. thing to prep for a cross, right? So I can kind of prep for a cross. I can see the holes in my data. I can see it. I can prep for a cross. Right. I can't prep for those crazy questions, but I can prep, I can usually prep for cross. But to prep for direct and not know which way the attorney is taking it and things like that is a little nerve-wracking. So it's comforting to have at least a, a idea of where where the attorney wants to go. And now, again, whether or not the data goes there is one thing, but at least to kind of be prepared for the type of questions that you're going to have. It's, it's comforting. 
I will just say that, you know, I've prepared clients who are therapists who are practitioners for depositions and testifying. And again, in, in my, my situation as an attorney, I'm usually representing, they're a third party. They're being called just to, to give testimonial evidence. But to your point, that's one of the most important things I feel like I can do for them is to, you know, re- you know get them prepared, make them a little more comfortable, explain how the process is going to work. Walk them through a mock, you know, sometimes they do a mock deposition or, uh, you know, mock kind of um, uh, questioning so they can get a feel for it. So then when it actually happens, they're like, okay, I've did this once already. I'm a little bit comfortable. So I do absolutely agree that preparation is so critical for the, the therapist who's involved in any sort of situation where they're providing evidence, you know, or, or de- being deposed or that type of thing. Yeah. And even stuff like I'll ask the attorneys if it's a courtroom, a courthouse that I haven't been to before. I'll ask where the parking is just so mm-hmm. like, I don't have that anxiety. Like, do I have to pay for yeah. parking? You know, do you know what courtroom it's going to be in? Mm-hmm. Can you, te- can oh, you yeah. tell me, can you tell me about the security? Cause each courtroom had each court building has its own sort of like security procedure and things like that. And now I'm asking about masking. Like, are you expecting me masked? Yeah. Are you not expecting me masked? When, so for instance, I testified in Montgomery County, during the pandemic, uh, earlier during the pandemic, I, I think we're still in it. I'm unclear whether we're in the pandemic or not anymore. So totally. Yeah. So, but I, I contacted the attorney that retained me and said, look, I want to wear a clear mask while I'm testifying. Cause I want people to be able to connect. And he said, that was fine. I talked to an attorney in a different County and said, look, I tend to testify in a clear mask. And he said, absolutely not. He's he said, we don't see those up here. It's going to freak out the judge. Like, thank you for the feedback. Hmm. Interesting. But it's also, I also, I, again, I'm, I'm female. So I do talk about what the judges expect from, from me as a female expert as well. So there are some judges that are old school and still kind of expect the skirt suit. And I ask because I want to make sure the judges are going to listen to me. And I know this sounds really stupid, but if they're not going to listen to me because I'm wearing pants, hmm. I will throw on a skirt. I hate skirt suits, but I will do it. That is an interesting point because, and you know, Maryland, there are a lot of judges there are, you know, who are old school and very formal. And then there's others who are a little bit more flexible or more, I say modern is the right word or not, but you know, you get my, my point. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting that you have to take that into account because, you know, I think a lot of people, if you're not an attorney, you're not used to being in court. That's something you may not have even ever considered. Yeah. And I'm, I can imagine that that might be a little bit frustrating. I'm sitting here going, that would be so frustrating. I, you know, I would hate to wear a skirt too, if I didn't want to wear a skirt. And I'm wondering if you have any examples of ways that, you know, in addition to that ways that you may have seen people treated differently based on gender and giving their testimony. Oh, uh, I, I mean, I can speak from my own experience. So I get called sweetie and honey a lot oh, in testimony. I hate that. Yeah. As a man, as a male, that drives me mad. I've seen it too done and it drives me crazy. I hate when people do that. I also get called the, they won't call me doctor. They'll call me miss, which is, you know, a a trick. I correct it once and that's the end of it. What else? Again, this is the sweetheart thing. Um, Sometimes the voice changes when they're asking questions. It's a little, it gets a little condescending Mm -hmm. at times. And I shouldn't get used to it, but I am used to it. And I know how to, I, I've had enough experience with it that I can handle it most of the time. It, but it does irk me. And when I get out of the courtroom, I kind of, you know, compartmentalize, box it. And then I get out of the courtroom and call one of my friends or do something and start complaining. And, and that's but, what I'm 
Yeah. And that's what I'm wondering. I mean, so many of these things that I'm thinking about as you're talking like that would get on my nerves, right? Um, having to wear a skirt or if there was an attorney who was intentionally trying to poke, obviously the goal would be to poke or get under your skin, but it would truly annoy me if I were the person in that position. And you present as so calm and matter of fact, as you're talking about all this. Um, and I'm wondering, how do you navigate that when some something or a comment is truly getting under your skin in that moment where you're also trying to get the job done? So in the moment, I do the glass of water trick, which is, you know, take a sip of water and give myself a second. I usually curse in my head and then <laughs> go there. I will say the masks were really helpful with my nonverbals because I actually could mouth it and no one could see it. But, you know not so much with the clear masks or unmasked. So I do that and I kind of check it, but I, some of it is that I've, I've been doing this since 2009. So I've been doing this for a while. So I I've developed sort of a way to just sort of put it on the back burner, but I do a lot of self-care to make sure that I can handle some of these, especially in the, the week or so going up. If I know there's a trial that looks like it's going to be pretty contentious because sometimes I'm called to testify and I'm not, there's no, I'm just there to talk. And I'm not there as a battle of the expert thing or anything like that. I'm just there to talk. And that's a little, that's less nerve wracking, obviously, than if I know there's a battle of the experts happening, which doesn't happen that often. (laughs) Tell us more about that. For those of us who, you know, that's not part of our regular work experience. Tell us a little bit about that. The battle of the experts? Absolutely. So the battle of the experts is a really horrible term, but it just means that there's one expert on one side and one expert on the other side. Not really a battle because on top of it, like the, the other psychologists, because there's certain psychologists that get retained a lot in certain areas. So we we all kind of know each other. So we see each other. We're like, hey, what's up? Good to see you again. Oh, you're on that side this time. I'm over here this time. You know, and it's sort of it's sort of that. So there's a friendly banter, a little bit of competition. But so the battle of the experts is one side will put up their expert and then you do direct and cross. And usually there's little redirect, which is the attorney that retains you gets asked a few more questions. And sometimes the judge pops in with questions. I'm actually more freaked out about the judge questions than anything else because those can come out of nowhere. Mm. The attorneys like them because then they know what the judge is thinking and where the judge is latching on to. I hate them yeah. because there's been, there's been times that I'm like, okay, that's what you took from my testimony. Okay, I am doing a bad job. Right. Judge could ask any question whatsoever. Yes. Right. And I have gotten wrapped into a few custody hearings, not as I, I was an expert on psychology, but not opining as to the best interest of the child. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. But I, I've kind of, I, I guess, custody adjacent mm-hmm. is what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. Sure. And some, some of the questions that come out from the judges there are, they're thought provoking. Like mm. it, I get taken back a little bit there. But that's also a newer, it's a newer arena for me. Speaking of judges and questioning, I was curious, a question popped in my head. You know, you mentioned the pandemic earlier. So I'm just curious, did you, was there a difference? Did you find there was a difference? Was one easier than the other? You know, during the pandemic, when a lot of the trials, when a lot of hearings moved to Zoom or moved to to being on the computer, um, some have now gone back um, and courtrooms Mm -hmm. have opened up. Have you had the opportunity to see if there's a difference or, you know, is one less stressful experience for you than other, you know, as opposed to being in the courtroom, as opposed to being on video camera with the same, you know, group of people that you normally would be in a hearing with, but just in a different kind of locale, maybe your living room or your, your office. 
Yeah. And I've done both. So I've done Zoom hearings and I've done in person. And I actually did an in-person hearing before vaccinations, which was mm. interesting. Oof. So, and it's been, and every courtroom's different and every county is different. But I remember that one in particular because we had the plastic barriers all around us and we were all wearing masks and we had to talk really loud. So I felt like I was shouting during testimony to be heard, which was, that's something different. It's not something I was used to. So I don't mind the Zoom testimony. I do prefer in person because it's easier to see everybody. And I'm a psychologist. I love nonverbals. So and I can connect with a trier of fact. It's on Zoom. I can't really, I don't know if the judge is looking at me or not, mm. but I can tell in person. So I do, I do like that. Now I, I gotta say, like I've done some, I've done some evals where the person lives like four or five hours away. And so I don't mind the Zoom hearing because it keeps me from having to drive four hours for 15 minutes of testimony sometimes. So I don't, I don't mind it then. But even when I'm Zoom, when I'm doing Zoom testimony, I still do the whole outfit. So I did try once with just doing the like the suit jacket with the shirt and leggings underneath, and it di- it didn't feel right. I feel like I have to be like fully into it to do the testimony. But again, I prefer the in person. I think it's easy. It's I find it easier. But I know there are some of my colleagues love the Zoom. Mm. So I think either way, honestly, I, I don't like the plastic barriers. It's something I really don't like. Now, in terms of some of the cases that you work with, I'm wondering for you, what are some of the most difficult cases? Many mental health providers, for example, know that there are certain cases that might tug at their heartstrings or there are some some cases that they don't work with because it's too close to some of their own lived experiences. And I'm wondering for you, what have been some of the most difficult cases to work with as you're looking at how the justice system operates? So... For me, a lot of it is animal abuse is a trigger for me. So I, I'm not a huge fan if there's an if there's animal abuse. I'm also some of the more minor cases I struggle with a little bit more, especially if they're going through like the third or fourth iteration of competency and things like that. And because sometimes the justice system is used as a way to get people help, but to do that, they have to still be pretrial, which means that even though the there could be times that I say this person's never going to be competent. You know, we we know that there was a head injury at the age of five. We know that there was a massive loss of function. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they're not going to regain it. You know, they're 25, 26, whatever now. And we know they're not going to regain it. We have 20 years to show that there was no progress made in those 20 years or very little. It's not going to happen in the foreseeable future, which is the the term for restorability or attainability if they've never been competent. So to see some of these cases get dragged on, but at the same time, understand why they're getting dragged on because that's how the person's getting services or they're looking for a service provider or they're looking for DDA services to be put in place or they're looking to find a group home or they're looking to find, get them on Medicaid or whatever it is to try to get them help. So, but at the same time, I find it a little frustrating because we're using one system to fix the deficits of another. Mm-hmm. Along the same questioning, I guess the question I have is there's got to be a sense for you that, at least with some of your cases, that sometimes no matter how good a job you do, you can't save the world. You can't. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things just aren't going to go well. And the person who you're evaluating would say, it's not going to end up okay for them. Has that something, is that something that you sometimes or have learned how to 
you know, address or compartmentalize or is, you know, how do you would to deal with that for yourself or does that have an impact on you? I mean, I'd like to say that I've compartmentalized it, but I haven't. So there's been a a couple of cases that I've been involved with and they're juveniles where Mm -hmm. I have massive amounts of records that can show where all of these other systems failed this child. And then the child is still put away for juvenile life and taken away from their Mm -hmm. family, which is like the worst thing for a kid. Let me change that. Not for all kids, but for this kid, for some of these kids in particular, these were really significant things. And just to to see that and to, and there's some cases that stick with me because of that. And at the same time, I I try to counterbalance that when times that I've seen things work. So I did a case with an adult in, in DC where it was a sentencing case. And the attorney said, there's something going on with my client. I just need you to look at him. Like, just tell me, am I on the ball that there's something, something else happening here? And met with him and gave the attorney feedback. And I said, I, I, there's something. And she said, can he test? And sure, sure. Went in and tested and uh, lo and behold, massive amounts of trauma. And the attorney used that to have the court order services as part of the sentence. Mm-hmm. So he was able to go into the community he got the services he needed. And then a few years later, she contacted me. She's like, remember this case? I just want to let you know that he's doing great. He's got a job. He got his GED. So I see, I get to see those too. And that's kind of what balances it out a little bit for me. But there's definitely cases that I look at and I go back and I say, what could I have done better to help the court see the kid or the adult that, that I saw and to see that this isn't a bad kid. This is a kid that's a product of a bad system. Mm-hmm. And so why are we holding this kid responsible? But of course, these are very like lofty goals. And like you said, I, I can't change the world, but maybe I can, I can help one juvenile at a time or one adult at a time. One of the things that you told us um, in our notes before a meeting is that burnout is real. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit more about that, how you've learned that, maybe things that you've learned, recommendations you have for others who do similar work. Well, like right now I'm backing off some juvenile cases because there's been a couple of cases that are tugging at me and I contacted the person that does the scheduling for the state and I said, I need a break from juvenile for a bit. Mm-hmm. So really kind of recognizing some of that, and especially like there's a pandemic restrictions, all of that stuff, uh, everything that everybody else is going through, psychologists, mental health providers, forensic psychologists, lawyers, judges, we're all going through it too. And to be able to recognize and be able to say like, yes, this sucks. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. And it's okay to feel distressed. Like it's okay. But we need to know when we can do things and when we can't, when we need to back off and just being really aware and being open and talking about some of this. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I've done is I've kicked my self-care up quite a bit. And it's not like baths and bubble baths and spa days and things like that. It's old school, back to basic self-care. So it's making sure that I'm getting seven or eight hours of restful sleep a night. I am exercising pretty much every day. I am eating healthier. So I'm making sure I get my veggies in. I'm trying to reduce my caffeine intake as I drink a coffee while I'm talking to you guys. and. This is only my second coffee today, but again, trying to really do a lot of that, making sure that I have the the social and the spiritual and all of that stuff happening 
And Mm -hmm. because I can't do what I need to do if I'm not in a good place. And also recognizing that there's times that I need to take time off and that's okay too. And really giving myself the okay to do that. And that's something I think a lot of mental health providers don't do. Like Mm -hmm. we get into this because we want to help people. And even forensic psychologists, we're in it because we want to make a difference in the justice system. Like that's really why we're in it. But we can't help everybody if we don't help ourselves too. So we have a lot of times we put ourselves on the back burner and I've been really making a conscious effort to take care, better care of myself, uh, not only for myself, but for my family, for my clients and for the attorneys that retain me who are my clients. And I think for a lot of people, they might know that on like a logical level, but in terms of that emotional level of doing it and truly knowing that it's okay for me to step back, that it's actually good for myself and other people if I do that. I think a lot of feelings stir up for people and I'm wondering what has been helpful for you and, and truly knowing that, um, this is what I need to do. And it's good for me. It's good for others in terms of actually doing that and maybe not feeling like you have to push on because people need you, but really saying I need to step back. So this, this is actually funny, but, um, I ended up buying a Peloton. We all had our pandemic purchase. Mine was Peloton. (laughs) (laughs) And I started doing it in the morning before work. And I noticed on the days that I woke up, went downstairs, did like a 30, 45 minute class or whatever it was, I felt better and I was better able to handle the day. And that led on to other healthier decisions. Like I I don't cook. So I started, I said, you know what? Let me look into a meal prep thing Mm -hmm. and started looking into getting some lunches available. So I have a company I like to order from. I get some healthy meals. They come to the office with me or they're at home if I'm doing, if I'm at home doing telehealth and I have those. So I, I'm making myself a priority because by making myself a priority, I'm more able to be there for others. And I've no, I've just noticed that and just noticing the differences, like there's a big difference if I haven't exercised for two or three days versus when I'm exercising almost every day mm-hmm. and also recognizing and not feeling bad that if I want to take a day off from exercising, it's not a chore. It's something I do for myself. So there's, was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday. My alarm went off to go exercise and I'm like, screw it. I need more sleep. And I just, I did it. And I don't beat myself up for that because that's what my body needed at that time. Right. That's self-care. I mean, right. that in itself is self-care is recognizing what your body needs or, or doesn't need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of I've talked about that, I think on other episodes as well, is that in this field, mental health, where practitioners like you and Melissa on those listening, your job is to help others. You can't do that if you're not in a good place yourself. So that self-care is critical to you being able to provide the care to your clients. Right. And it's it's important for all mental health providers because let's be honest, we hear the worst humanity has to offer. No one, I say this a lot, no one goes to therapy or gets an assessment because they're like, hey, I've got a bunch of extra money and I just want to tell you how awesome my life is. Right. right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. No one's going to therapy because things are going well. <laughs> exactly. And especially in forensics, we not only hear, we hear literally the worst that humanity has to offer, but the worst that humanity can do. So like I will sit in the room with people who have committed murders and who will detail the murder to me. I need to be able to drop that. Like I need to leave that at the prison or at the jail, or at the attorney's office, or probate, wherever it is, I need to be able to leave that. And I need to be able to do that by keeping myself healthy. So for forensic psychologists, especially, I mean, it was instilled in me, the importance of self-care as early as grad school. 
And so I, I'm grateful for that, but I know not everybody gets, gets that. So, I mean, we really do need to do it. It's absolutely vital. And burn, like I said, burnout is real and we need to watch out for it because if we burn out, we're no good to anybody. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, you know, that's one of the things so I remember when I was going through law school, um, they actually called us in for a, a like a session with the a group, I guess, that provides counseling and a drug addiction and alcohol addiction for, for attorneys. And they stressed, you know, how prevalent addiction and abuse is um, in attorneys. And it's true. There is a lot of mm-hmm. burnout and a lot of that lack of self-care um, in the legal world. Um, you see that as well. Um, and that's one of the things I remember as well coming up initially as an attorney. I was working in a firm where I was working like 80, 100 hour weeks um, as a young um, a, a, a law clerk and then attorney. And it was like, I remember one of the older attorneys even saying to me, he's like, you need to be like, do whatever you need to do to get yourself ready. So when you come into the office, you're in the space and able to handle the work because you know it's so important that you have that time outside of work to kind of put yourself back together and and and, and be in a good space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's for, I mean, one, everybody should be doing self-care, but mm-hmm. it's vital for anyone that's in like a helping profession. And as weird as it sounds, I would put law in a helping profession because a lot of what lawyers do is they exist to help people, whether it's, you know, a criminal defense attorney, a state's attorney, and, you know, the civil attorneys that do their things too, but like a probate attorney. And, mm-hmm. you know, sure. so medical professionals too, burnout is real with medical professionals, especially nurses, with teachers, with anybody that's working with other people. Right? Especially in the mm-hmm. pandemic. Yes. That's, you know, I have a couple of friends who are nurses and in the medical, you know, in the actual hospital medical setting. And that was one of the biggest things they talked about. And when I would talk to them about things happening during the pandemic, they were like, it is crazy. Like my life's crazy. It is like people are just burning out because it's just so intense what we're dealing with, with the pandemic and seeing people come in with COVID and dying, you know? And I remember one of my friends who's a surgeon was even telling me, you know, he upped his exercise regimen. He kind of Mm -hmm. started carving out time in his calendar more than he used to because he needed that time to decompress so that he could be at his A game when he went in to deal with a lot of this horrible stuff. Yeah. And on the mental health end, we're seeing the, I mean, the mental health crisis, right? Which existed before the pandemic and the pandemic literally just threw like lighter fuel on it. And Mm -hmm. so we're seeing that and we're seeing everything's become more complicated. Yeah. So, and again, I, I have a handful of therapy clients that I picked up during the pandemic to kind of help out with the ballooning wait list that we had. Mm-hmm. But I do assessments and the assessments have become more complicated because we have people who haven't really socialized for two years. Mm. We have people who have been using less than ideal coping strategies for stress because when your normal coping strategies disappear, like hanging out with friends, things like that, going out to restaurants, you find other ways to cope. So a lot of people have gone to drugs and alcohol to cope. And those are leading to other issues mm-hmm. as well. And that impacts presentation. And it's, it's frankly making my job harder, but you know, we do it because our goal is to help is to help people. And sometimes we have really hard conversations with people saying like, yes, I know you're not, you're having trouble paying attention, but you're also smoking pot five times a day. So I think that's probably it. So if you, 
were to give one piece of advice to someone who was, let's say, in your shoes when you were first coming up, you know, what'd be one piece of advice you'd give to someone who was a young Jess, you know, coming up, who's maybe going into a, uh, um, a postdoc or, you know, is working on trying to get their license? Is there one or two pieces of advice you'd give them? In retrospect, now they're looking back. So the, the first one would be don't lose yourself. Like, make sure that you put yourself first. And I think in this field, it's very easy to put other people first. And um, to speak frankly, I think a lot of people do it. So that way we don't have to deal with our own stuff too. But in all seriousness, yeah. put yourself first and just make sure that we have to be self-aware. We have to be really good at everything, like knowing ourselves and making sure that we have the right nutrition. And sometimes that includes like hacking it a bit. Like we don't, you don't have to make meals, like we can buy them. Mm-hmm. I have... Um, so I, I actually, I've been working in person throughout most of the pandemic and as has my team. And it, it's funny because if you look in the refrigerator, we all have like high protein snacks and they're ready to go in between clients. Like we have this protein shakes and things like that. So we keep them there. So we have that. Mm-hmm. So that would definitely be like one piece of advice for anybody looking to go into forensics and looking for like thinking about testimony and things like that is just to remember that the attorneys are just doing their job. like just like you're just doing your job. And if they're attacking you personally, that means your data is good. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So the personal attacks mean they have no other way to get at you. So just hold yourself up high and know that your data rocks and that they're reaching, they're grasping at straws right now by calling you sweetie and miss. (laughs) (laughs) This is all really great feedback for people. Now, for anyone who is wanting to learn more about you or your work, or I know that you've written a book and you do trainings for anyone. And she has a podcast. And you have a podcast, right? So for anyone who is interested in connecting with you, listening to your podcast, reading any of the work that you've written, how can they do that? So I have a website because I decided I should have a website now. So it's Dr. (laughs) It's drjessicahassan.com. The podcast is Practically Mental. I'd love to have you guys on it, by the way. It's it's new. It's it's basically just me ranting with guests. It's actually kind of fun. And I, it's actually- I listened to a couple of episodes. It's awesome. It's really fun. I have it on, I have it on, literally, uh, on my, uh, my podcast list. I have it now. Thank you. No, it's it's been So I, I actually started it as a way to help with the mental health crisis a little bit to let people know like some of this stuff that you're experiencing is normal. And let me bring on some other people who are experts and we can talk about how normal this all is. And that's literally what it is. I work for a great practice called Quinn's Orchard Psychotherapy. We have offices in Rockville and Frederick. So you can check me and the entire team out there. And the book I wrote is probably not one a ton of people would be interested in, but I wrote, <laughs> I wrote The Essentials of Rorschach Administration Comprehensive System in Our Past. So it's part of the Essential series. It's, and it's that's not all one title, turner. right? It is and one that's title. All one t- <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly a page turner, but if you are a projective person, it's a good book and I get a royalty. So please buy it and help me pay back my student loans for when they go back into repayment. Well, thank you, Jess. This has been awesome. It's fun. It's always fun to be able to have a you know laugh while we talk about serious stuff. So this is this has been great. I really appreciate you coming on. That about wraps it up for us today. Of course, I'm going to do my special announcement and remind everyone again that um, we are now having some important forms, forms that practitioners often use or need. Um, we are starting to post those on our website. So please go ahead, check those out. 
please feel free to touch base with us if you have a form that you don't see that you think would be useful. Um, and bookmark the site. Also, uh, we are always looking to have people on in terms of practitioners. We want, you know, this year we are focusing on having practitioners on come on and tell us about a challenge or obstacle that they faced and how they overcame it. So if you go to our website, we do have a form you can fill out really quickly. We'll get back in touch with you and hopefully maybe have you on our show. Other than that, thanks everyone for listening. This has been great and we will talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.